Hi, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of Blooming Intelligence Disruptors podcast. Uh, my name is Anurag Rana, and I'm a technology analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg's in-house research arm. We're delighted today to have Matt Wood as our guest today, who's a vice president at Amazon Web Services, or AWS. Now, we think AWS is one of the biggest disruptors in the tech space over the last decade, and we look forward to hearing from him about what's the next big thing in cloud computing. Uh, Matt, welcome to the podcast. Uh, could we please start with a brief background of yourself, how you ended up in AWS, and what your current responsibilities are? Absolutely. Hello, Anurag, and uh, hello, listeners. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I listen to the podcast uh, regularly, so it's uh, um, a delight to join you here today. Um, my name's Matt. Uh, I work across all of our products and services here at Amazon Web Services. Um, I have been at the company uh, just about uh, just under 15 years, I think. Uh, I was an early employee for AWS uh, over in Europe, uh, helped build the business over there, and then um, relocated to Seattle, Washington, where I'm speaking to you from now. Uh, and I've worked on pretty much every aspect of the business uh, since then. Uh, I've run the uh, All Up Product Roadmap. Uh, I have uh, started the machine learning team with my good friend Swami uh, and uh, now work across uh, all of our products, services, storage, compute, analytics, data warehousing, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. And uh, probably for the past uh, 10 or 11 months, I've uh, spent the majority of my time uh, focused on uh, generative AI uh, across AWS. Uh, before that, um, I was um, uh, worked in uh, science. Uh, I worked in bioinformatics, uh, so using computers to solve biological problems. Uh, I worked on the Human Genome Project uh, over in Cambridge in the UK, uh, and just happened to be there uh, around the time when we moved from sequencing uh, an entire genome uh, of an entire species all at once. Uh, we did the human genome, and we did about 40 other species at the time, including um, gorilla and the duckbill platypus, which is my all-time favorite creature, all kinds of freaky. Uh, it's a mammal that lays eggs. Uh, the males have a poison claw on the inside of their elbow. Uh, if you want to do a podcast just on the duckbill platypus, I'd be very happy to do that in a follow-up. Um, and we moved from doing species and comparing species genomes, which are interesting because you can find areas of um, biological interests, which are conserved through evolution, uh, to a just step function change in the amount of sequencing that we could do and the cost of sequencing dropping down, which meant that we could compare not species uh, for billions of dollars, but individuals for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and the, uh, that's very interesting because you can start doing precision medicine and drug design and all those sorts of things. But it comes with it uh, just a, a, an absolutely enormous wave of data generation. Uh, so the human genome is about three gigabytes in size. Uh, we used to use a, an iPod as a data coordination device. We used to send it around all of our sequencing centers uh, with the genome build on it. Uh, but we moved to a place where we were uh, generating raw data in the tens or hundreds of terabytes a week. And so a really big step function change in the amount of data that we had to uh, produce and manage and analyze and all those sorts of things. And um, I was, uh, we were really struggling uh, to store that amount of data, to process it. And I, I made a call to a friend of mine uh, who was over in the US and I said, hey, look, we've got a similar background. How do the big American technology companies do this? Like, we can't be the only one solving this problem. And he said, well, hey, come over to Seattle, you know, have dinner with me uh, and I'll tell you all about it. And there are very few people that I would fly halfway around the world to have dinner with, but uh, he's one of them. And as we're walking to dinner, he says, well, you know, hey, big news, I'm going to join Amazon. I was like, well, dude, why are you 
why are you joining a why are you joining a bookstore? It doesn't make any sense. You're a scientist. And he, uh, over dinner, told me all about what would become uh, Amazon Web Services and uh, the opportunity for um, driving uh, computation and data storage uh, as if it was a utility. And um, I was totally hooked. Uh, I got the instructions for the AWS beta a couple of days later in my in an email. Uh, the um, the the it had an attachment which was the software that you needed to use and the instructions were literally handwritten out in the email and so I was in pretty early I think um, but I you know I span up my first uh, compute instance on the EC2 uh, beta um, and logged into it and then just was hit with this you know blinding flash of the obvious it was so clear to me that that's how you know technology was going to be provisioned. And it's so obvious to me at that point that that's where that's where the world was going to go. And um, we built a, a genome analysis pipeline uh, using the beta. And then I got a call from Amazon. And uh, just 11 interviews later, I was uh, on board um, uh, over in Europe and then, as I say, relocated and um, have enjoyed working here ever since. No, it's it's excellent story. In fact, many, many years ago, I don't even remember when it was, I listened to some of the YouTube videos about the the high processing power of the cloud, and uh, I was very intrigued by it. And since then, I spent majority of my research time around cloud and cloud services. So now, you know, we our podcast is about disruptors, and argue, you know, in our, in my view, there isn't a bigger disruptor in the tech space over the last decade uh, than AWS. Since then, the whole world has changed the way they work. Uh, they're trying to catch up to uh, what you guys do and and offer similar services. So let's, you know, for, for those people who haven't really figured out what cloud infrastructure services are, can you give us a bit of a primer and explain to us um, what exactly are clients doing on your platform? How do they go about it? Um, maybe, you know, what's EC2, what's, uh, uh, what's storage and all those things. And, and in fact, so we can build on it uh, for our the, the later discussion on generative AI. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think, um, you know, Amazon Web Services provides uh, today a very, very broad set uh, of uh, infrastructure services and developer services for um, builders inside any size of organization uh, that want to be able to um, build applications of uh, pretty much any level of sophistication. Um, uh, what's interesting and what was perhaps different and disruptive, uh, to use your language, uh, early on with AWS was that in order to be able to, before AWS, if you wanted to um, build an application, uh, you wanted to build a, a web application at any sort of scale, you just wanted to prototype a new idea or build out a quick mobile application, whatever it was, um, there was actually a large amount of heavy lifting that you needed to do as builders in, just to get started. You needed to usually get some servers racked and stacked, uh, either in your own data center uh, or in a, a co-location facility. Uh, you needed to be able to um, get some storage online. You needed to uh, install software and patch that software. And um, then eventually, after you've paid all that money up front as capital um, and you've done all of the undifferentiated heavy lifting of you know, getting that infrastructure online, only then could you start actually you know, building what it is that you wanted to build. Um, and you know, that process could take six months, um, 12 months. Uh, and inside a big organization, you know, it may just never happen because your idea doesn't get funded or, you know, it doesn't uh, doesn't ever rise to the level of priority. And you just never get it off the ground. Um, what AWS provided was a way to dial up any amount of uh, infrastructure compute or storage or databases that you needed at any scale 
uh, and then pay for them as if they were a utility. Uh, so pay as you go pricing. So instead of having very, very large capital expenditure up front just to get up and running, uh, you move to a world where you could just provide your credit card and then pay nothing and move entirely to an operational spend. Uh, you just paid for what you used. Um, you paid per gigabyte per month for storage. You paid just for the uh, the amount of time that you were actually running the server. Uh, today, we charge per second. Um, and then you could, without any upfront capital and with just a few um, clicks inside a web page, get up uh, any amount of infrastructure that you wanted uh, as if it were a utility without any undifferentiated heavy lifting and that cop CapEx spend completely vanished. Uh, which meant that builders could just start experimenting you know, far more quickly. Uh, they could get their ideas off the ground far more easily and cheaply. Um, and ultimately, you know, if, you, if you operate inside a data center, um, the walls of those data center uh, are a constraint. There's only so much power in there. There's only so much storage. There's only so many servers. And those walls and the amount of capacity that you have, they, they act as a constraint for your thinking over time. And uh, organizations were starting to think, not what can I achieve with my idea and how big could it be, but what can I get away with doing given the money that I've already spent and given the walls of, the, of my data center? Um, uh, that is the constraint. And it becomes a business constraint and it becomes a constraint on your, your innovation. And so with AWS, of course, those data center walls completely bleed away. They, they can move and become any size at any shape at any time. And so as a result, customers' thinking starts to become unconstrained. And you start asking, what can I do with the data that I've collected? What can I do with my idea? Um, and take that idea to be as big as it needs to be. You can go global in minutes um, without any sort of constraints. And so whilst very early on with AWS, we thought that this approach would be um, most applicable to kind of startups. You know, two people in their pajamas, in their garage, Try to get an idea off the ground. Like it's, it's a very compelling way to do that because it's just uh, it's very low cost and gives you a lot more runway as a startup. But while low cost was kind of the the sizzle that got people excited, the stake that kept people coming back for more on AWS and is just as applicable to startups as SMBs as you know large enterprise customers is just the speed and agility that this approach provides to you. Uh, the speed at which you can move, the speed at which you can build, the speed at which you can scale, the speed at which you can expand, it just, uh, it changes by, you know, several orders of magnitude. And that agility, the ability to be able to pivot from one idea to another, the ability to be able to grow your idea as big as it needs to be, as big as it can become, uh, has meant that we've got um, uh, customers in, in pretty much uh, every industry, in virtually every domain, of virtually every size and shape. Uh, both in commercial and in public sector uh, across the world, now operating uh, their applications on AWS. Um, folks you would have heard of like Netflix and Airbnb and Intuit, um, but many, many more that uh, use AWS today uh, at the very core of their infrastructure as a sort of new normal way that they operate all of their uh, applications. And the cost savings plus the agility and speed uh, have proven to be, you know, uh, a very, very compelling combination for, uh, you know, a remarkably large and broad set of customers. Yeah, you know, one of the biggest um, advantages we tell people about is the variable, in addition to the variable pricing model, is the pace of innovation. Because, you know, as we talked about 10, 15 years ago, 
bulk of the innovation was done on open source and it seems um, it's now on open source and only on cloud. There, there isn't a whole lot going on premise. Now, you mentioned that, you know, initially startups were your clients, but it seems to me now that almost everybody, I mean, the legacy enterprises that have been around uh, in the pre-cloud era are also utilizing AWS. Now, tell us a little bit as to, are they using it for new workloads or are they using to migrate their current workloads? What's kind of the work that, you know, those companies are offering uh, or are using AWS for? Yeah, I mean, how long have you got? Uh, pretty much everything is happening uh, on, on AWS. We see um, we see a lot of customers, you know, big enterprise customers like BMW and Coca-Cola that are migrating as much of their core enterprise workloads, uh, the databases, the data warehousing, the application services, both internal, the applications that they provide to their customers externally. Um, it, all of that is migrating to the cloud just as just as quickly as most customers can do it. Um, in addition to that, you know, there's some there's some really inventive work happening you know, in lots of different uh, industries as well. So you know, BMW is a, a huge enterprise and has lots of enterprise needs. Um, but yeah, we're also able to work with them just as an example to uh, accelerate no pun intended, uh, their autonomous driving initiatives. And so whether it is you know, migrating, lifting, and shifting existing workloads uh, or converting those workloads so that they are more, you know, quote unquote, cloud native, uh, they have better scaling characteristics, better cost control characteristics, all those sorts of things. Um, they go serverless much more, more often, uh, all the way to you know, net new workloads, um, uh, many of which involve artificial intelligence, which we can talk about in depth. Fair point. You know, one of the things that, and I, and I get a lot of investor questions about it, and perhaps you could, uh, you know, elaborate and explain it to us, because when we look, look at the financials and the company reported, you know, cloud commitments have grown very rapidly. Even in second quarter, I believe they were up 32%. In first quarter, they were up 37%. And yet the cloud growth, which is, you know, based on consumption has gone down. How should somebody from outside look at it and, and think about it in terms of, you know, the potential for cloud in terms of the journey we have, um, you know, where are we in that? And uh, how should somebody, uh, I, I say, reconcile these two facts? Well, you know, I think um, uh, AWS has been growing very steadily and very healthily uh, over the uh, last 15 years. Um, we are a, a pretty sizable organization at, at this point in terms of just, uh, you know, net sales and, um, you know, our segment sales continue to increase year over year, uh, even on, you know, a very, very large base. Uh, you know, we're at uh, $22.1 billion per quarter. Uh, base now growing at 12% year over year. So there's, there's still a very large amount of growth on a very large base. Um, you know, there's a lot of macroeconomic uh, conditions that, you know, all of your listeners will be aware of that, are, um, you know, caused uh, some customers to look at how to um, adjust their spend on AWS. Um, but that adjustment is actually just more to been around kind of cost optimization versus a net reduction in spend. Uh, it's how do I get more bang for my buck, which is you know a very very healthy approach and something which we're working very closely with uh, with many customers on. But we're even exiting that point where um, you know as the macroeconomic uh, headwinds start to decrease in 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 force and magnitude, uh, that uh, more and more customers are investing more and more in AWS, and we're we're seeing that that growth commensurately. No, it's a fair point. This is exactly what we say that uh, you know um, this. 
this uh, variable consumption model is, is a good thing for clients in the long run. Anyway, let's talk about AI now. This is an area where we get most of the questions at this point. Uh, can you please give me an overview of AWS's uh, generative AI capabilities? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think it's fair to say that uh, myself and you know, the rest of the team at, uh, at AWS and at Amazon are incredibly excited about generative AI. Um, it's probably the single largest technical shift in how we're going to interact with data and information and each other, you know, probably since the, the very earliest uh, uh, internet uh, and the very earliest web browsers. And organizations that invested in the very early internet and were accessible through those very early browsers, you know, went on to enjoy extraordinary growth over the past 20, 25 years. Um, you know, and the, it was a large part of the inspiration for starting Amazon.com as an example. And so, you know, we expect that, um, you know, through this technical transformation that's, that's taking place that we're going to see similar multiple Amazon size organizations grow. And that organizations that uh, are investing in this disruptive technology right now are going to drive tremendous transformation across their organization um, in uh, in a similar order of magnitude as we've we've seen with the with the internet. And so, um, as you can imagine, we're we're investing uh, along those lines. Um, I haven't spoken to a team at uh, at AWS or at Amazon that isn't um, you know hard at work and um, uh, uh, building generative AI capabilities. Um, and um, uh, shipping many of them already. And so our approach really is that um, we want to continue the work that we've been doing um, on democratizing machine learning and the capabilities uh, of artificial intelligence um, that we've been on a, a path to do uh, at AWS for 10 years um, and that we've been working on at Amazon for the past you know, 20 years or so. And so, you know, machine learning is a... Um, uh, a, a super interesting uh, area in and of itself. Um, but the technology in the past has only been capable of um, really, you know, it's been around for 80 years, uh, but it, it was only really capable up until about 20 years ago of, of taking very simple inputs, um, numbers, categories, and uh, creating a mathematical model which maps those inputs to very simple outputs. Again, categories and numbers. So if you wanted to build a machine learning model that um, predicted the selling price of the house, you could use the square footage and the number of bedrooms, those sorts of things. Simple in, simple out. Um, what happened with deep learning about 20 years ago was that we saw we were able to take much more complicated inputs. So uh, speech, natural language, music, images, you know, that, that sort of thing. But you still had to map it to relatively simple outputs. So, you know, is there a cat in this photo? Where are the faces uh, in the XY position of this photo. So still relatively simple outputs, but the inputs were much more complicated. Uh, with generative AI, what we're seeing is that you're able to take those complicated inputs, but use them to map to very complicated outputs. So you can take natural language as an input and you can map it to large amounts of uh, creative net new uh, uh, language. Uh, you can generate images, you can do it the other way around, speech to image, all of these sorts of things. So the transformation, transformative power of that is something that is kind of uh, emerging, um, uh, but something which is yeah, extraordinarily exciting. And now, generative AI kind of gets a lot of uh, uh, hype and a lot of attention, a lot of headlines um, through its ability to be able to you know, create um, new language and uh, um, you know, write a haiku or a poem. Um, but honestly, it, that's interesting. Uh, it's a fun demo. Don't get me wrong. 
Um, but the real opportunity here is the generative AI can drive um, a step function change improvement in productivity and efficiency through automation, not just in content creation, although that's where a lot of customers start, uh, but in driving higher order problem solving, in um, forming strategies and executing those strategies, completing tasks. Um, and we think you know, relatively conservatively that um, you know, we should, most organizations should expect to see about a 10x improvement uh, in their productivity. Uh, through the use of generative AI over the next portion of time, it's a very fast-moving space. So maybe it's yeah, maybe it's two years, maybe it's two months. Who knows? Um, but uh, I actually think that that's that's conservative, and that a hundred x improvement on generative AI is um, is probably more likely. And so our approach at, at AWS is to uh, enable as many customers as possible to be able to realize that improvement in efficiency through automation. And we're doing that in a couple of different areas. So the first is we're making it extremely easy for engineers and builders to be able to write code um, using AI coding companions uh, that recommend code directly in the, um, the development environment of, uh, of these builders. Uh, we're also investing in a set of capabilities that make it incredibly easy to build generative AI into um, the applications and the processes of existing um, companies and organizations, or make it easy to uh, define entirely new categories of products. Uh, we have a, a new service that we announced in April, um, which is called uh, Amazon Bedrock, uh, which is an extremely easy way to uh, build with the large foundation models uh, for natural language processing or image generation, whatever it might be, um, and actually embed those capabilities directly into your uh, into your application. Um, and then we're going to um, invest in ways that allow you to uh, expand the capabilities of those foundation models so that they're not just creating, but they're actually able to interact with uh, your existing systems to be able to read in information from your existing systems privately and securely, uh, to be able to use that data and information with generative AI systems and to be able to uh, interoperate with your existing APIs and uh, uh, enterprise systems uh, to be able to take action on the results of your generative AI applications. And so we have large investments across you know, those three areas. And I think uh, if we keep going on, on the path that we're on, customers are pretty excited about what we're working on. Uh, and if we keep going on the path that we're on, I think we'll easily see that 10x um, uh, productivity improvement um, pretty soon for most organizations. But uh, for some of us who haven't done any PhDs, uh, maybe you can explain. Um, so, so one, one thing that's very simply, it's not clear in my mind. You know, when I look at the current applications uh, out there, we, I see a lot of consumer bend or the consumer usage because, you know, when you look at something like a chat GPT, it's just eaten up the internet. So I have all that data underlying so I can come up with the results. But in an enterprise, my data is siloed across multiple systems. So for me to get that level of benefits, what are the steps I would need to take? So, so let's imagine that I am, you know, you can pick BMW or Pepsi or any other company that you want, um, that I'm not cloud native. I'm heavily on premise, which is where bulk of the IT spending is. How do I go about, you know, with a strategy that can eventually help me? Sure. Well, um, number one, I'd suggest you move to the cloud and to AWS as quickly as possible. But uh, that aside, um, you know, the, these foundation models, and here we're talking about the underlying generative AI models, um, they're absolutely enormous. They've been trained, as you said, on you know, uh, uh, terabytes, 
exabytes of data in some cases, like just huge amounts of data. Um, and uh, they've got a very, very broad knowledge. Um, uh, they know most things that are on the internet, to your point. However, once you get to any sort of level of depth, um, they kind of become a bit like Swiss cheese. They've got areas of uh, like high confidence where they know a lot about something, and they've got air- really big gaps where they don't know a lot about something. Um, and so um, one of the things that we're working on and that, that customers are excited about, to your point, is how do you take your existing information from your existing systems uh, or the data that you've got available and that you've already put governance around and got data quality controls and data pipelines flowing and all those sorts of things, or the large amounts of unstructured text information that you've been gathering, which is privately held, how do you channel that information to plug those Swiss cheese gaps in the model? Where those gaps exist, you can get errors, uh, you can get low confidence results, and you can get what's called hallucinations, where the model effectively just has to try and make something up to plug the gap itself. And so that can bring down the accuracy of your generative AI capabilities and actually limit the way in which they are applied. And so what we've been working on with customers is the ability to be able to take your data uh, and be able to flow it into the model uh, to be able to uh, close those Swiss cheese gaps. So the first way to do that um, is with uh, actually with relatively small amounts of kind of paired data. So, for example, if you're building out a chatbot, you may want a set of questions and answers. And you don't need many of those questions and answers in, a, in order to be able to improve those models and plug some of those Swiss cheese gaps. You probably need a couple of dozen. You know, the more the merrier. You've got a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand, even better. Uh, but you can use that, that relatively small amount of data to start to plug some of those gaps or shape the responses uh, to encourage a particular type of response or discourage other responses. And uh, it's called commonly fine tuning. It's a very cost effective way of plugging some of those Swiss cheese gaps. Um, But it is limited. It's very cheap. It's very effective. um, But it is limited because you usually can't do um, robust, deep reasoning on the data that you fine tune with. It's more used for shaping the responses. Um, However, what we're seeing is particularly in industries uh, that... um, uh, charitably may not have been in the vanguard of technical adoption in the past. Um, healthcare, financial services, insurance, drug discovery, life sciences, these sort of regulated workloads, which uh, are a little bit more conservative in their use of technology. These organizations have absolutely massive amounts of private text. They have the scientific reports, they've got the financial services reports, they've got the insurance reports, they they know a huge amount. And so you can actually use that text information and drive that deep inside uh, the generative AI model. And so you can drive much more advanced planning, execution, reasoning um, uh, of that data for your for your end users. And so those are some of the things that we're able to enable um, uh, uh using the uh, the services that I mentioned, such as Bedrock uh, on AWS. And uh, as a result, we're seeing, you know, some uh, some very exciting uh, uh, use cases emerge uh, from customers in those industries that are you know, moving into production as we speak, you know, using, using these capabilities. Matt, in this case, you know, again, I've only heard this, uh, you know, complaints from customers that the the, the the model itself will only train on one customer data, but they don't want them to use that to, you know, 
uh, to their competitor or yeah. how does that even happen because my assumption is that it's a learning model and one it's one it's it learns you can't unlearn it so how, can can you please explain to us how how you can do that yeah absolutely so um yeah there are uh, there are there are services out there on the web um some of which you've already mentioned uh that you know, when they launched they got a huge amount of excitement uh they generate generated a, a ton of a ton of learning the light bulb went on for a lot of people after they started playing with it and in the beginning um you know they were very successful but they they actually ended up being banned inside a lot of organizations um because they were taking the information that was flowing through those systems and using them that information to plug some of the swiss cheese on their behalf um and that's fine if you're just asking you know what the capital of the uh, of england is um but a lot of organizations uh were using uh confidential information uh, ip um unknowingly and were i think somewhat surprised to find that that information was being exfiltrated uh through this service and used to improve the underlying models and so um you know our approach is very very different our approach is that uh, from day one, uh, we do not inspect uh we do not use any data that flows through uh the AWS generative AI systems uh to improve the underlying models uh in fact the data uh, retain remains entirely under your control and so uh you get a a private endpoint that is connected directly to your virtual private network uh so you get full transparency over where the data is flowing and what it's uh, where it's where it's headed and uh, we don't use any of that data um to to improve the models we don't inspect the data uh, manually even today uh, there are some other large cloud providers out there that uh, right there on their documentation pages uh, when you do your due diligence which i'm sure all your listeners will do you know actually disclose that they have humans looking at that data uh, and we don't do any of that uh, uh, for precisely the reason that you're outlining uh, any organization that is taking this seriously any organization which is operating in any regard but least of all regulated industries um are not going to be comfortable in uh, by my estimation in in having humans look at that information in kind of any way shape or form and just in the same way as we would not deliver a compute service which was not designed to be secure from day one we wouldn't ship a storage or a database product that wasn't designed to be secure from day one yeah we didn't ship a generative ai service that wasn't designed to be secure from day one and so even if um you're using your own private data and we have lots of customers you'd be surprised how many customers on aws are at exabyte scale yeah successful startups and large enterprises you know just have exabytes of this data that they want to be able to channel and improve these models as you're as you're driving even in those cases we do all of that completely privately and so as you're modifying the uh, the neural networks themselves uh, we make it really easy to do that but we take a copy of those uh, of those modifications we store them privately we encrypt it and only when um the uh, the owner of that new model um wants to make a request that's when we load it into the system again completely privately and so there is there is no way for that data to uh, exfiltrate accidentally um you know through our system and um from a customer perspective it's important because it encourages usage but uh, there's also two other areas that are super, make it super um uh, compelling i think the first is that many many companies uh, on aws have already invested in their data strategy they have their data well governed 
They have it in a data lake. Uh, they have their databases talking to one another. They have their data pipelines running. Uh, and this provides a way with a very small incremental investment of leveraging that existing work that they've already done on their data quality. And so working with generative AI, is it's not a cold start for most organizations. Most organizations have already done a lot of that work and are really well suited to kind of use that as a springboard to uh, get into generative AI. And then from that springboard, you know, leapfrog, uh, you know, potentially a lot of their competitors as a result. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, through the way that we operate, you're actually generating a net new asset, which is private for your organization. And so this is not a system which gets better for everybody through its usage. It just gets better for you. And that means your competitors don't benefit. And as a result, you're able to generate a, you know, a net new asset of value for your organization. Thanks, Matt. So one of the things uh, in the last earnings season we came back with is everybody is talking about huge backlog on orders for you know AI-related work, but nobody has any GPUs. You know, what's really happening in that world? You know, what is AWS doing about the the high demand for GPUs? And what's your strategy at the the hardware and the silicon level? Yeah, sure. I mean, we are... um... Uh, we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of usage of GPUs uh, today on AWS. Um, you know, we were the first to make generally available you know the next generation of uh, NVIDIA uh, GPUs, uh, which are uh, you know uh, which are great uh, for training these large language models. And you know, as a result, you know the vast majority of the top performing um, you know large language models that are available have already uh, have all been trained on AWS. And so actually, if you look at, um, you know, as of yesterday, I think I checked, you know, the top performing uh, large language model in the world, uh, according to the Hugging Face leaderboards, uh, is a model called Falcon. That was trained on AWS. And so customers are able to use the GPUs that are available on AWS today that are the first to be available in general availability um, to train those large language models. Um, but in addition to that, we have a, you know, a long-standing investment in building, designing and, and building our own custom silicon um, for, for, for cloud use. Um, so we are on our third generation of Graviton, uh, which is our general purpose um, cloud uh, CPU. Uh, but we also have dedicated hardware uh, chips for um, training, uh, which we call Trainium, which are specifically designed to train very, very large models in distributed clusters. Um, and uh, we have a, a custom design chip for inference. So actually making predictions and doing the generations of the, uh, the generative tasks of these large language models uh, that we call Inferentia. And uh, Inferentia is um, you know, uh, designed to deliver very, very low cost, high throughput, low latency access uh, to these large language models, um, and we're already on our second generation of uh, of Inferentia. So, yeah, we've got uh, we've got a wide degree of uh, of options for customers, and um, customers are able to uh, employ those uh, to their heart's content uh, uh, quite successfully uh, to generate the the largest, highest performing models out there. You know, you mentioned Code Whisperer um, um, a little while ago, or uh, mm-hmm. the ability to help you know people code. I, I just cannot imagine any. Uh, Anybody writing code in the future that's not going to have that level of service attached to whatever platform totally. they use. Um, what about top of the stack applications? You know, how does generative AI for AWS look like uh, for that layer? Yeah, I think you know, right at the top of the stack, there's a there's going to be a whole host of applications uh, that um, 
uh, customers want to use where you don't even know you're interacting with a, a large language model. Um, and so Codris is actually a really good example of that. You know, we don't, you, you can just type a comment uh, into your into your code and we take a look at the, the comment and all the surrounding code. Uh, we take a look at the code that's in the project and other files and then uh, we use that to uh, create um, you know, code recommendations, uh, which uh, you know, are, are pretty successful in being accepted by the developers, either just you know, ad hoc, you just take the whole thing, uh, or you know, just as a starting point. You know, in, to your point, instead of the, the era of just starting with, a, with an empty document, with an empty code file, with an empty Word document, I think is, is fast coming to an end. Like most, or, most folks that are building or writing or doing anything creative um, are going to be looking for and just using as a matter of course, you know, something to get them started more quickly. Just give me a first draft. I know what I want. I'm the expert. Just give me the first draft. And uh, Code Whisper is, is excellent at doing that for generic code. Uh, but also, you know, we spend a lot of time training it on on AWS specific code. But um, at no point do you know that uh, you're dealing with a large language model. It's much more abstract than that. Uh, another area that we're um, that we're investing in is uh, around healthcare and uh, health AI. Uh, we've done a lot of work in this space for for many years, um, and uh, we have health data lakes that are available, and um, we have uh, health transcription and uh, services and all those sorts of things. And um, one of the most recent announcements that we made uh, in June uh, was a new service called HealthScribe. Uh, and what HealthScribe tries to do is solve the problem that um, if you've ever visited a physician, um, the problem of getting the uh, getting the conversation of between a physician and a patient um, into some clinical notes. Um, today, if you want to do that, there's kind of two common ways. Um, one, the record you have those little dictaphones that you see physicians using, um, and they just record everything. And at the end of the day, a real human, often the physician themselves, has to spend a huge amount of time just transcribing that the, those conversations into clinical notes, which go into the into the healthcare system, and so that's just uh, that's just an extra step, and it contributes meaningfully to the workload of physicians, um, and you know can cause a bit of burnout uh, from time to time. The alternative seems to be just that the physician sits and types as you're talking. <laughs> I'm sure you've uh, you've experienced this as well. I certainly have, where the physician is at their desk, you're talking, and they are furiously typing. Uh, to try and capture what you're saying, which is just not a great experience either, although, uh, yeah, and you tend to miss things. So what HealthScribe does is uh, we just take a, um, a live feed of the discussion between a patient and a physician. We automatically identify who is whom uh, in the conversation. Uh, and then uh, we start to transcribe that into text. And then we use large language models under the hood to provide summarization of the clinical output of that conversation. Uh, so we can start to not just see, you know, what the symptoms and the signs were. But we can start to translate that into the sort of language that you would find inside a clinical note. Uh, and we provide summarization and 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 so on and so forth, so that the 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 physician you know never has to take the time to do the manual transcription themselves. Um, and we've got lots of checks and balances to ensure that that is um, that is accurate. Um, and uh, you know, physician at any point can actually just click on a a word uh, literally inside the clinical notes, and we will replay the portions of the conversation uh, that uh, contributed to that um, to that part of the summarization uh, and the clinical note uh, directly uh, from the from the conversation. So you can always get back to the to the raw materials if you 
if you want to, or you think a mistake has been made. So that's another example where highly abstracted sits away in, you know, we partnered closely with 3M, uh, sits uh, away in the in the 3M uh, uh, software that most clinicians use, um, uh, but you never know you're, you're dealing with a, a large language model, but we're solving some real problems there. Now that that is actually, I'm going to go check that out after this. Um, <laughs> well, let's talk about large language models. I know you know AW has its own uh, Titan. Uh, how does the performance of this uh, large language model compare with others uh, that I've been hearing about? You know, GPT, Falcon, Llama. Like, you know, would would love to learn uh, more from you. For sure, yeah. I think you know through um, through the capabilities that I was talking about earlier, uh, we make available actually a pretty broad set of foundational models. Um, so our belief is maybe a little different from some other folks out there, but uh, at AWS we we don't believe there's going to be one model to rule them all. Um, that's just not normally how technology plays out. Uh, usually, you want something which is much more specific for your usage. Uh, and I think that's what we're seeing with large language models, you know, uh, uh, as they start to mature and as we, we see real production use uh, of them. And so we make available a range of models, um, each of which are uh, good at different things. Uh, so we have um, third party models uh, from Anthropic. Uh, so we have Anthropic Claude and Claude 2, which is a, 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 a remarkable model uh, amongst the best out there. Uh, we also make available multilingual models from AI21 Labs. We have image generation models from Stability AI. Uh, we have enterprise models from Cohere. And so customers can find the right model to suit their needs for their use case. Um, and then we have our own model that we train ourselves, uh, which we call Titan, uh, which is actually a family of models. And the models are available uh, in slightly different sizes and shapes, depending on your use case. Um, and what's interesting uh, is uh, the usage that we're seeing um, it, it's becoming clear that um, different models have different use cases, uh, not just in terms of their capability, but in terms of the latency that, with which you can run them. You know, larger models tend to be slower, as you can imagine. They're doing a lot more work. Um, but uh, smaller models uh, are much, much faster. And so if you need lightning fast real-time evaluation, like a smaller model, which is uh, customized and specialized using some of the approaches that I was talking about earlier, uh, can be can be a much better option for customers um, and also uh, ends up being a much lower cost. Uh, some of these large language models are quite expensive to run. Um, and that's fine if you are able to take advantage of the value of their of their reasoning capabilities. Um, but in many cases, you don't need those reasoning capabilities. Uh, in many cases, you want something which is which is much, much cheaper for whatever it is you're applying it to. And so Having this, the ability to be able to find the right model that suits your needs from a use case perspective and having options from a, a cost and latency perspective um, is turning out to be a, um, you know, a pretty important differentiator. And you're actually starting to see you know, um, uh, some, uh, uh, some other folks in the space, many of whom have made extraordinarily large investments in individual models who are starting to copy this approach and starting to offer additional models, even when they've paid you know, very large sums uh, to invest in, in the one model that they, that they started with. And so uh, I think that's a trend that's going to continue. And it's one that um, you know, combined with you know, our operational approach, uh, combined with our chips, uh, which can uh, drive uh, down the cost of training and inference, um, and combined with our approach to privacy and security, which is why you know, most customers yeah, even if they started with another uh, provider to, to just to get going, uh, are migrating those workloads to AWS or are starting with AWS um, today. 
Um, you know, Matt, uh, I've covered the cloud industry for uh, well over a decade, and for the first time, there is an investor um, in your narrative that AWS is trying to play catch up uh, when it comes to other uh, in terms of cloud services. You know, why do you believe that you'll be able to effectively compete um, against the competitors in, in Gen AI? And, and this would be our last question. Sure. Uh, you know, I think um, uh, I, I would obviously vehemently disagree with that with that statement. Uh, I think that uh, it's very hard to um, to pick a winner three steps into uh, a, a, a marathon. Um, this is a marathon, and uh, we are very very early in the uh, in the advent of generative AI. And so, number one, I think it's very hard to pick a winner. Number two, it's a journey. I don't think that there's going to be a winner in this uh, other than customers who are building uh, with these models. But um, I think from our perspective, I haven't spoken to a customer uh, in any sort of depth about our uh, training and fine-tuning capabilities, about the way that we approach privacy and security, about our operational approach and the investments that we're making in chips, uh, about the model selection that they're able to uh, take advantage of, or about the orchestration pieces of actually building um, applications around this technology, uh, who haven't come away you know, very satisfied. And as I say, uh, uh, choose AWS and um, uh, as their their platform of choice uh, for generative AI. Uh, and many are uh, who have already started on other providers are migrating to AWS you know, as quickly as possible. Matt, thank you so much for your time today. It was fun having you. Uh, we we look forward to you know bringing you back a year from now to see what's new in the Gen AI world at that point.